Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on, well, what was a sunny day, has been a rainy day and is now back to being a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, it must be said, as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on the topic of leadership. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Sean Ballard. Sean is the Group Managing Director of Sunray Engineering Limited, a leading designer, manufacturer and installer of steel commercial doors, amongst other things. They're headquartered in Kent. Sean, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much uh, for your time and uh, coming on to speak with me, Sean. Now, um, the purpose of this uh, podcast, as I say, is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the current COVID-19 situation and business leaders having to really feel their way through the crisis. Tell me, for somebody who's been in your line of work, I can imagine it's been a real challenge the last few weeks, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, I think obviously it, it sort of uh, it sped up relatively quickly um, as a process of what uh, really business needed to do to sort of uh, if you like comply um, with the sort of uh, the initial government sort of uh, lockdown. Um, and obviously, once the first announcement was made, it was kind of uh, all hands to pump from logistics point of view to understand how we could actually sustain the business uh, remotely. Uh, yeah, obviously, uh, comply with uh, you know the requirement of how the business uh, can operate, albeit on a decreased uh, uh, value. And um, I think the, the biggest challenge has been sort of putting that into practice relatively quickly. Uh, obviously, we're a manufacturing site, um, and uh, can't really manufacture at home. Um, so it was a case of ensuring that the front end of the business, i.e., you know, the marketing side, uh, the sales side. Uh, was uh, operational a bit remotely rather than the, uh, the offices here. Uh, and at the same time, ensuring something like finance uh, was also sort of uh, operational to sort of, you know, payables, receivables, uh, was, you know, still operational behind the scenes. Um, obviously, the manufacturing was the key point, which we did have to actually sort of shut down. Um, and that was sort of, uh, I guess, also driven by other. Uh, parts of our key routes to market uh, the construction industry. Um, and I think what sort of surprised us was the sort of speed uh, of which the impact of the lockdown had on the various sort of sectors that we work within. And, uh, you know, I guess we, we kind of were prepared um, of what steps to take. Um, but in terms of the time frame, um, I think that's the thing that sort of took us by surprise. I can certainly imagine um, it's been a real learning curve um, for yourselves um, as a business. Um, but it's often said that times of adversity and difficulty such as this do bring out the best in people. And have you found that that's been the case uh, with the team at Sunray as well and that you've really sort of um, taken adapting to this current situation in your stride, as it were? Yeah, I think, you know, we're fortunate to have um, a number of members of staff. and We've got 72 employees, um, some of which have been some very long-serving members of staff. And I think... Uh, the thing that sort of shone through throughout the sort of period was the loyalty you know, and the support from the staff to ensure that you know any element of the business that was remaining operational uh, was fully supported. But equally, that those weren't um, you know the operational in terms of manufacturing side fully really understood. Um, and obviously, you know, we stayed in contact throughout the sort of period as to you know what we aimed to do. Uh, 
over the sort of coming weeks as we sort of reach the end of the lockdown period, albeit it's still sort of um, hit and miss in terms of the uh, longevity of what that was meant to be, and, and to a degree still is. You know, um, we're actually uh, only back this week on the, oh, it's actually yesterday, month the 11th, um, as a phased return. Uh, we have 31 employees back out of the 72. Um, with manufacturing commencing, um, but that's only to fulfil a number of projects or sites uh, in and around the southeast that uh, are actually open. Uh, and again, we're sort of a chicken and egg situation. We don't really want to manufacture something whereby this site isn't operational, therefore we can't sort of deliver the product or, in fact, install it. So it's very much led by the demand, albeit you know we've got the orders in the pipeline. Uh, which is encouraging, but it's just uh, a time element in terms of restrictions as to when they can actually install and uh, really product in the factory. And we often hear it said that these are unprecedented times that we're in and people haven't really encountered challenges like this before. I mean, like the economic crisis in 2008, for example, was a very different sort of challenge to the one that we're facing. And quite often um, when there's so much uncertainty, there can be a lot of pressure on business leaders, especially to provide all of the answers during this time. But amid that uncertainty business leaders don't necessarily know any more as those around them, their employees in a way. And so maintaining a level head during that time when there's all of that pressure, that's also a real challenge psychologically for those looking to run businesses at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, leadership is one of those things where people all look for answers. Uh, and as you say, you know, we don't always have the answers. Um, I think this situation scenario is totally different to any recession that I've been through previously in, in the manufacturing world. And, um, you know, it's to a degree completely out of our control. Uh, you tend to find in recessions there's still sort of pockets of business uh, that remain operational. But obviously, because this is a sort of total lockdown uh, across the UK, uh, the impact is much more dramatic um, and, again, out of our control. Um, however, I think the key to this is the fact that to ensure that the staff don't lose, if you like, uh, I suppose, motivation, um, their loyalty, uh, and also a feeling of kind of belonging to the business, which they still are, even if they're, they're, they're not there. Um, communication is important. And so, you know, what we wanted to do was, was hold a sort of regular sort of uh, Zoom meetings, which again is a great piece of software that I wasn't familiar with previously, and, and keep everyone informed. And, and I think that's been a sort of tremendous support and comfort for those people that, if you like, have been on the furlough screen. Um, sure that whilst they are, you know, not here, um, they're still valued as employees. And um, obviously it's a case that they understand that business won't return to normal immediately, but certainly over the sort of coming months, we hope to resume business as normal, uh, whatever normal might be. Um, but as you say, it's an unknown. It's, uh, it's, it's totally different to what we've ever experienced in, in previous times. Um, so I think coping with it has been the learning curve so I think communication has been critical Communication is critical, as is um, transparency and clarity as well. And there's been yeah. much made of the uh, the government's leadership throughout this crisis as well, hasn't there? And 
Of course, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, did uh, go on air um, on Sunday and um, was actively encouraging people within manufacturing and construction industries, especially to uh, return to work um, as of this week. But even then, in response to that announcement, there have been some opposition parties, some trade unions saying that there is still a lack of transparency and a lack of clarity there. And for somebody like yourself who has recommenced work this week, is that something that you find yourself aligning with? Or do you think that that leadership has been very clear from the government? I think they've been in a very difficult position, regardless of who the leadership uh, would have been or, or, or is. Um, I think, you know, Mr. Uh, Johnson's done a very good job uh, in terms of sort of uh, setting out what was required uh, for businesses uh, in terms of uh, uh, guidance and compliance. Um, yes, the return policy seems to be slightly uh, woolly in certain areas, but I think, you know, it's a case that he doesn't want to compromise the work that's already been done by, if you like, all the businesses and public uh, from remaining at home. So I think it's a very difficult balance, uh, and I don't think there's a, a right or wrong answer. I think it's uh, you know one of these situations that the country's not experienced before, and therefore the government are just sort of you know looking at what they feel is right to do. At the same time, understanding that in the longer term the economy has to recover, uh, and it can't. You know, sustain uh, a forever support mechanism. I think um, you're absolutely right in saying that and I think hindsight will be a wonderful thing when people look back at this and um, then ultimately decide on whether the response was the right one but I think it's absolutely correct in the sense that the government is taking the decisions that it thinks it has to make um, at the time and that highlights yeah. something as well that really important about leadership doesn't it the fact that the buck stops with you and you are very prone to criticism as a leader especially being one in the public eye such as a politician or a sports personality for example so you do have to be a little bit thick-skinned as well don't you in a way oh, absolutely yeah i mean you know i think it's one of those sort of, uh, jobs and roles that um, you're always open to criticism um and you can never please everyone um, i think the the issue is is to understand exactly what's required in generic and whole of the country and um, to ensure that we all abide by a generic set of rules uh, and then hopefully the return uh, to normality will have to be phased um, and I think he's done the correct uh, put the correct measures in place. And uh, he did mention on Sunday the construction industry, obviously, which we're a lot to, uh, which was good news. Um, however, obviously, the headlines over the last two days have been very much about the transport returning to you know routed platforms and busy motorways, etc. And I think the trouble is, is that no matter how the message is sort of delivered, there'll always be different views of what the message means. And I think, you know, that's down to individuals, not the leaders. Um, so I think you know, it's a difficult balancing act. And I think, you know, what he's done um, is the right thing to do. Um, it's the interpretation, I think, of, of everyone uh, to understand really what it is uh, that we should be doing. And uh, obviously, as a leader of the business, um, all we want to do is ensure that employees, we have a, a clear mind on what we're aiming to do. And that comes from a strategy. And as you mentioned, the word clarity. And that comes from communication. And I think that raises another important point, doesn't it? That um, 
when you are taking steps like this and having to be reactive to circumstances such as COVID-19, I mean, it is quite, um, it's an, it's inevitable almost that maybe one or two things may not be quite the right approach and mistakes will be made, but it's a constant learning process in both government and in business as well, isn't it? In a normal day of trying new things, maybe getting one or two things wrong and then adapting and changing direction, having learned from the mistake that's been made. And I think there's an awful sort of temptation in this country to jump straight on failure and really help people buckle under the criticism in a way, whereas we should be looking at it as more of a learning experience, embrace it as a learning curve and then adapt for the future to make sure that we improve. I think it's important to recognise that, isn't it? And to understand that as human beings, we aren't infallible in the decisions that we make. Yeah, I think it goes back to something that I mentioned earlier. We've never been through this experience uh, in certainly my lifetime uh, uh, within business and, and I don't think the country has really faced such a dilemma before so I think you know, as you know it's a learning curve for all of us uh, leaders of the country too um, and they will always go forward to you know, criticism uh, different opinions uh, how things could have been done differently um, and I guess what it does do it does you know, enable us to perhaps be more prepared in the future if there's something like this um, but also the way that we have dealt with it as a country, I think, is remarkable. And I think we will also have to be a, an example of how we did cope very well with the situation and very quickly. Um, so I think I think that's admirable from the sort of uh, the government perspective. Yeah, there's certainly a lot to uh, to take from this. Um, I completely agree with you uh, there. And also, um, given that you've, of course, had the experience, um, sure, not just of uh, going through recessions, but also of uh, going through a crisis such as this, if you were to channel your experience and give some advice to younger generations of people who are aspiring to be leaders within business and other areas in future, what sort of advice would you give them and tell them to really take on board going forward from here? I think they've just got to be fairly determined and, and be open-minded. Uh, you know, look at things objectively, um, understand, you know, uh, how different things mean uh, different things. Uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, the message isn't always clear. Um, and whatever they come across as their sort of spine and a leader, I think you always have to cross-examine, cross-question, um, and look at things objectively. I think that's very sound advice. And um, if we just think about um, your career just for a moment um, as well, Sean, before we do uh, go about wrapping things up on the programme, um, you've been in business for quite a little bit of a, a while now, I think it's fair to say. Did you realise sort of quite early on in your career that you would be in a leadership position uh, yourself and running a business? Yeah, I, I guess I was always sort of fairly independent in terms of my sort of thought process. And, and you know, that meant that I didn't always agree with ideas or, or initiatives um, and so I would only perhaps look at uh, how those uh, ideas or initiatives could be sort of, uh, improved upon uh, even challenged and I think you know what that does is you start to build up your own sort of uh, process in your mind of how businesses can work evolve uh, and also put tests together and, and sometimes you know um, they don't always work you know sometimes you learn by your mistakes I think that's quite key in business is that, you know, there's never a right or wrong way of doing things because I think you learn as you go. What does tend to happen is that when you do make mistakes, you certainly learn the frequency of your business quickly. So uh, I think, you know, sometimes you need to make a few mistakes to understand what not to do. 
I think that's absolutely right. I think it's a, a constant learning experience through making mistakes. But I think um, also when people do sort of venture um, on their own way in business as well, you find that they often learn by looking at people maybe that they worked with and work for and looking at examples of leadership that work quite nicely, some maybe don't work quite nicely, and then sort of amalgamating those things to sort of develop their own leadership styles as well. And that's another way as yeah. to how experience, amongst other things, is a really, really great teacher. Yeah. I think mentoring is very important, um, and also smothering uh, potential flair, um, so that you enable people to develop their own personalities and skill sets, just by sort of gentle mentoring and guidance, um, and and also letting people make decisions, um, perhaps enhance their decisions if they're not quite right, but at least it makes them think of things objectively and slightly differently, and from different perspectives. Absolutely right. Um, of course, picking your mentors carefully is very important and surrounding yourself with positive people as an aspiring leader, because it's about not just getting the best out of those around you as a leader, but also allowing those around you to get the best out of uh, you as well. I think that's tremendously important. And yeah. if we think about going forward as well, Sean, um, do you give me an idea of uh, what you imagine the next sort of 12 months will hold for yourself and for Sunray Engineering as a uh, business. And also tell me what you hope to achieve, not just in that time, but also in navigating the COVID-19 pandemic, emerging from the other side and what your ambitions are for the longer term future. Well, I think, you know, it, it's difficult to be exact as to what's going to happen in business and particularly our industry. Uh, what we do now at the moment is that, you know, typically we're about 53% of our uh, original budget. And, um, you know, that, that, sort of, uh, that decrease has, has happened in the last eight weeks. Um, so we've got some ground to make up. Uh, we're fortunate we've got a very small foot, uh, which typically takes us sort of three to six months um, uh, into the future. Uh, so therefore, we're quite positive and optimistic uh, that that will sort of Transpire into uh, continued business um, that we've already got now uh, transitioning them to pipeline. Um, but at the same time, we're not going to lose focus on new markets and, and innovation. And that's very much what we're involved in is kind of developing new products for different markets. That's not just in the UK, that's on the export side as well. Uh, we're sort of heavily involved in sort of the Middle East, um, and, and that's got great potential for us. Uh, and I think it's really fair to say as a business, we have to keep an open mindset um, and perhaps not just look at you know, what we've done historically in our markets uh, over the last sort of two, three, four years. We also look at new markets and not be afraid to pioneer uh, and develop those areas. Absolutely. Um, it seems as if there's a great deal of um, ambition there, Sean, uh, for certain. And I think it would be great, um, even though we are just about out of time on today's programme, to one day in the next few months, once we start to see those products being developed and those hopes borne out, if we can maybe catch up, have you back on the programme and just see how um, Sunray is uh, getting on in that respect. But for now, um, I've got to say, it's been a really insightful and also really enjoyable experience having you on the air with us today. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come onto the programme and speak with me for the listeners' benefit. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Right. Thanks very much, Scott. Thanks very much for the opportunity. And uh, let's hope we, uh, we, <laughs> we will recover very soon, Sunday. For certain, yes. And for anybody uh, tuning into the episode today, do heed the guidance. Do stay at home where possible and do stay safe because it really does help, help make a difference in saving lives for certain. 
I was speaking just then to Sean Ballard, the Group MD of Sunray Engineering Limited. And coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet, and also having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett, and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm -hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and production of goods, services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 
2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere 
uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people 
to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- cu- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? 
that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver 
the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent 
professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.